Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And if you would, would you stand? And we're going to be reading uh, from verse uh, 2 to the end of the chapter. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Holy Spirit, you who moved uh, uh, holy men long ago, Uh, to pen the pages of Scripture. Grant, O Lord, that these words would be alive to us. And that, gracious Lord, we might hear them with ears of faith, that we might uh, respond as you intend. Let these words accomplish what you desire in us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 7, verse 2, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Yerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. And so they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. You may take your seats. Have you repented of anything recently? Now, 20 years has passed since the ark uh, had been lost 
and returns. And uh, all this time, Israel uh, has been living under the heavy hand of the Philistines. The Philistines have penetrated deeply into Israelite territory and they have outposts scattered in the land. They will not let the Israelites have a blacksmith lest the Israelites have uh, weapons uh, forged and be able to rise up against uh, their masters. And Israel is in such dire straits that they lament after the Lord. C.S. Lewis said that God whispers to us in our pleasures and he shouts to us in our pain. And God's shouting at Israel has finally gotten their attention. And Samuel, seeing uh, the lament in God's people, uh, decides to pursue them in such a way as to determine whether, in fact, their lamenting is merely remorse and grief about the circumstances they're in, or whether, in fact, it's godly sorrow that leads uh, to repentance and salvation. Samuel wants to see what the character of their sorrow is. Now, repentance is among one of the most poorly understood and least practiced of all biblical commands. And yet it's absolutely central uh, to Christianity. Jesus began his public uh, ministry uh, with the words, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe uh, the gospel. And the Christian life doesn't just begin with repentance. It's one of the two sides of the coin of faith. If you're going to see Jesus, if you're going to know Jesus, if you're going to grow deeper with Jesus, then the path is repentance and uh, faith. And Peter uh, tells us there are just wondrous possibilities uh, with repentance. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord that he may send the Christ. Have you been refreshed lately by repenting of something? Don't you want to be refreshed? Isn't this sin-saturated, arid uh, world... Uh, the desolation and destruction that uh, comes, uh, not just from other people's sin, but our own sin. Doesn't it make you long for refreshment? Repentance brings refreshment. And if that's the case, why is it so, well, uncommon among uh, us? Well, it cuts against the grain. It cuts against the time that we live in in a deep way. I know my own journey in repentance uh, has been, well, slow and uh, rocky. I look at myself some days, and I just can't imagine that the words of the Book of Common Prayer are true of me, that I am a miserable offender uh, and that there is no health in me. When I go to bed at night, I I review the day and I think, well, you know, um, I read my Bible, I go to church, I I pray, uh, I uh, didn't beat my kids, uh, I try to be nice to my wife, I try to be respectful to everybody I encounter in the course of my uh, day. There just really isn't anything heavy 
there's a little impatience here and a lack of attentiveness and listening uh, there and, and just some regular old laziness and poor use of time. But really, you know, no health within me, a miserable center. It just doesn't seem to fit uh, myself as I know myself. Other people struggle with repentance because they've been raised in a legalistic environment. And because of the defective discipleship uh, they've encountered uh, based on man-made rules, repentance is just abhorrent uh, to them. They know that a lot of what they've experienced is false guilt. Add to that that some people are just haunted by their past. They just simply can't uh, move uh, beyond it. They live under a cloud of guilt because of their past. A day doesn't go by when they don't think about something they did in the past that was terrible. And repentance just feels like to them a way to just add to that burden just to get some more uh, guilt. And still other people live in kind of a spiritual despair. They know God's holy. They know they don't measure up. And they fear uh, if you mix these two things that their fragile faith will be destroyed. But this is precisely what repentance seeks to do, to bring our sin to a holy God. So let me ask you, have you repented of anything lately? See, when life is hard and uh, it's arid and you're spiritually dry, where do you go for an oasis of refreshment? When failure comes, you have uh, given your best, but it's not enough. When it looks like everything is ruined, how can you recover? Uh, When relationships are strained and, and points of view clash and people are biting at each other, how can it be repaired? Well, I'm convinced that the Bible plainly teaches repentance is uh, how you respond to that. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and so that times of refreshing may come uh, from the Lord. Our text today is about relationship. It's about God affecting a repair in his relationship with his people. Samuel is central to this, and first we'll consider how it is that Samuel summons Israel to repentance, and then we'll see uh, that Samuel successfully intercedes for Israel. Now, Samuel summons Israel to repentance, and and his sermon's really very short, and it will repay uh, careful attention. If you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, Then put away the foreign gods from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. That's verse 3. Now the word returning is the most common word in the Old Testament for repentance. Um, And uh, God through Jeremiah says this, Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithlessness. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, To me, you should return. 
If you remove your detestable things from my presence and don't waver, if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and righteousness, then the nation shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. See, returning to God is intensely personal. It's not mechanical. It's not a religious ritual. It's not a matter of posing somehow in a worship service before God. It's not first and foremost behavioral. It's about moving toward God relationally. And it's out of that movement that behavior uh, changes. It includes admitting, owning, taking responsibility for what you did. Maybe it's your attitudes, maybe it's your words. It means confessing, which is agreeing with God's assessment of what uh, has taken place. And it means uh, forsaking that sin. And this, when this has truly happened, there will uh, be evidence of it. There will be these fruits of repentance. And Samuel mentions three here. Uh, Ridding themselves of foreign gods, making a full and clean break uh, with them, directing their hearts to the Lord, which means they are determined to be loyal uh, to God. Uh, and uh, to serve him alone, to have an exclusive uh, loyalty with him. And that means they have to rearrange their priorities. Uh, They have to acknowledge his uniqueness and their claims on him. That's what repentance looks like. Now just contrast this to what passes for repentance today. A husband schedules a business trip out of town. It's going to include not only some nice restaurants, but a couple of rounds of golf for himself on his anniversary. When he gets back, it dawns on him that uh, he hasn't been valuing his uh, wife and marriage as he ought. And so he buys his wife flowers or jewelry, thinking that will take care of things. Or he grovels He feels really bad, Um, and he lets his wife see that in the hopes that that will will release him from his indebtedness to her. Or he holds a pity party because naturally she's kind of cool toward him, and uh, he wants to to get past this, you know, this this little mistake he made. Or he tells himself, it wasn't really all that bad. I've got this under control. And he might even, well, add, it won't happen again, or an apology. But he just wants to move on. People do this sort of thing all the time with each other. And they do it to God. These are not acts of repentance. All the nation to repent. He doesn't just point his finger and say, you and you and you. No, he calls the nation collectively as a whole, to repent. Now this runs counter to our way of thinking because we see ourselves almost exclusively as individuals. And we we have trouble even considering that we have shared responsibility, that our choices actually affect uh, other people. We're pretty dismissive of it. We, you know, we, we say that action, that that's a victimless crime. That's a way of saying my... My behavior doesn't impact anybody in a significant way. But the Bible teaches that God relates to us not just as individuals, 
but also as a group. These are not mutually exclusive. These are both and. And both the Old and New Testaments have many examples of this if you have eyes to see it. Uh, God summons the nation of Israel on many occasions to repentance. And in the New Testament, uh, God's people, God's churches are also summoned uh, to repent as a church. And I, I know what many of you are thinking, well, I didn't do it. Why do I have to repent of something? I didn't do that. Well, I want to I encourage you to consider the example of a number of leaders in the Old Testament. Because that's what they do, is they lead God's people in repentance. Ezra calls the exiles to repent of their intermarriage. Not to, because of they need to maintain some sort of racial purity. It's rather that in intermarrying from other nations, they're going to be drawn back into idolatry. In chapter 9, he speaks of his personal shame. And then he, he says this, Our sin and our guilt need to be atoned for. Even though he hadn't done that. Do you see that? Daniel does the same sort of thing in chapter uh, 9. The sins he confesses mostly are things that happened before he was born. He didn't participate in them uh, directly. And the reason he does that is because he is a part of God's people. And God requires repentance on the whole of his people to collectively. And that's what we see Samuel doing here as he leads the nation in public, visible acts of confession and repentance. They fast and they pour out water on the ground. And whatever else this pouring out of water on is a ritual. And the Reformed uh, scholar Robert Van Oy comments on this. He says, uh, in the Bible, ritual is viewed as important for the people of God. Only, of course, when it's performed by those who are sincerely uh, repenting for their sin and expressing true devotion to God. Because ritual without obedience and repentance is an abomination to the Lord. But, but catch what he says next. And repentance without public ritual privatizes religious faith and gives insufficient recognition to the corporate nature of the people of God. And that's what you have here happening, that the people of God are united in this ritual of fasting and pouring out waters. They confess their sins and seek the face of God together. And, and we need to take this to heart, that unconfessed, unrecognized sin in our marriage, in our families, in our community, in our nation, and in our churches has consequences. Have we repented of anything lately? In the last book of the Bible, Jesus sends letters to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And every one of these letters has a pattern. It basically follows this pattern. Jesus affirms them, he, he, he compliments them for certain things, and then he criticizes certain things and calls them uh, to repent. He gives them a warning and an encouragement. And I've thought about this a lot. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe you have to, maybe not. But if Jesus were to write a letter to the churches in America, or he were to write a letter to the Reformed churches in America, or to the Presbyterian Church in America, 
or to CRPC, what would it sound like? You ever thought about that? I have, and, and I've thought about it in every church I've served. And I think that what he would say to, to CRPC, and really the, most of the churches I've served, he would have a lot to commend. The list would uh, include all of these things. For our doctrinal purity and depth, for the seriousness with which we take uh, obedience to the moral commandments of Scripture, that uh, our worship is uh, well-ordered, it's pure, it's in keeping with God's commandments. He would commend us for our love for one another and the service uh, that we uh, show to each other, especially in times of need. Our commitment to world missions, he would be pleased with that. Our zeal for his glory and our uh, care in, in guarding ourselves uh, from uh, worldly ideas. And I suspect he would have a few criticisms. Uh, Ralph Davis uh, uh, comments on, on one of them that I think uh, really resonates for me as someone who works inside the church. And it is that the church relies on human resources and planning to accomplish the work of God's kingdom. If there's enough nickels and noses uh, to fund a budget and to carry out some plans, we don't see the need to fast and pray and ask God's Holy Spirit to do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. Another thing I think he would say to many churches, and he would say it to all the ones I've ever served, is that we are very inwardly focused. Uh, we're self-focused. Uh, um, there's an apathy and a coldness in our hearts to people who don't share our values, um, that we either fail to believe or we fail to live like we believe that Jesus is in fact the only way that people can experience reconciliation and redemption, uh, uh, that we refuse to put the thought and effort that it takes to be outward uh, in our ministry. Um, we almost completely prioritize everything uh, for what happens uh, when we're together. And I think he would say to all the Reformed churches that your pride offends him our spiritual pride, because of our purity of doctrine, our love of teaching, the care in which we order our common lives. But at the root of all of these things are the, are the words that go to the church of Ephesus. All the churches have ever served need to hear these words. And, and so hear them, perhaps you will agree that maybe you're like all the other churches I've served. Jesus would say the root of all the things that he would criticize are due to that we love something more than we love Jesus. That we have something we love more than Jesus. In the letter to the Ephesians, uh, Jesus says, I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at first. And if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, notice what Jesus doesn't say to the church in Ephesus. He doesn't say they lost their first love. He says they abandoned their first love. That it was a willful act. It wasn't all at once. 
probably happened very gradually. Just imagine a husband saying to his wife, I don't love you anymore, uh, but nothing's going to change. I'm still going to earn a living. I'm going to have dinner with you in the evenings. Uh, I will uh, uh, father your children. I just don't love you. Jesus gives us three steps, three ways to restore our love for him. The first is remember. Remember what it was like when grace gripped you. What do you remember? I remember being 18 years old, and I was just so gripped by God's grace. I tasted love and joy in a way I'd never had, that I wanted everybody who would listen to me uh, to hear what had happened so that they themselves might taste this same joy and love. I remember just burning with desire. I couldn't wait uh, to the opportunity to gather uh, to worship uh, with God's people and to fellowship. Uh, how I love to just sing uh, to the Lord and to hear his uh, word explained. And I just devoured scripture. Uh, I was just so hungry. I would spend long periods in prayer and I didn't need to check my watch to see how much time had passed to discover it had been three minutes. <laughs> um, it seemed like uh, forever. Um, how about you? What do you remember? And Jesus says, repent. We've talked about that at great length here. And then he says, do the works you did at first. Are you doing those? Jesus didn't say what those works were. He leaves it to you to identify those. Whatever you did when you first came uh, to Christ. Now, the Ephesians could ignore Jesus and it would be disastrous. He said, if you don't respond, I will come and I will remove your lampstand in its place. That means you will no longer be a church. Now, the city of Ephesus is no more and the church of Ephesus is no more. The universal church will always exist until the Lord Jesus comes. Nothing is a threat to the universal church. But no local church's future is guaranteed in fact, the church in the West is not guaranteed its existence. The West itself, uh, God has not committed himself to the future of the West as uh, we have uh, known it. And Christ does withdraw uh, from churches. He removes uh, the light from them, even if they continue to meet. And then Jesus closes with these words of encouragement to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Everything will be restored at that tree of life. Have we repented of anything lately? Well, I'm going to just take a couple of minutes and finish out uh, this chapter here, what happens next. The Philistines here that Israel has gathered... And they reach a conclusion that Israel's about uh, to attack them. This is because in the ancient world, uh, Congress was not assembled and asked to declare war. What happened in the ancient world is people came together and sacrificed to their God, asking him to give them victory in battle. And so they assume an attack is about to take place, and they strike first instead. And the Israelites are terrified, and they plead with Samuel to pray uh, for them. And Samuel intercedes, and he's successful. 
Uh, Samuel offers a lamb as an atoning sacrifice. He prays and God hears. And the, the text tells us that God goes out and fights. In fact, God is the primary one who goes uh, to battle and Israel just mops up. It's a decisive victory. And then Samuel sets up a stone and he names it Ebenezer. And if you're an attentive reader of Samuel, you'll recognize you've heard this name before. Ebenezer was the name of the place where Israel lost the ark and was decisively defeated in battle. This is the writing of old wrongs. Israel enjoys uh, the restoration of God and things are happening as he intends in their relationship. It's been repaired. And this is why Samuel celebrated in the Bible along with Moses as one of the great intercessors. They anticipate the ministry of the Lord Jesus uh, Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ in his death upon the cross made intercession for transgressions. It's by his death, having offered himself once for all, the writer of Hebrews can tell us, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always makes intercession for them. His wounds plead God's acceptance, his pardon, uh, his favor for us. And so Paul in Romans uh, can speak not only of the intercession of the Holy Spirit as we pray, but that of Christ. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. True strength. Repentance is true strength. One of our biggest problems with repentance is we think it's weakness. Israel's weakness was due to her idolatry. And only genuine repentance would reverse the situation. Now, I know you haven't had 20 years to think about this, but I want to say, in my opinion... The church in the West is weak. The Reformed churches are weak. The PCA, for all the good things, all the reasons I'm, I'm uh, delighted uh, and proud to have been a part of it for almost 40 years, it's weak. And every church I've ever served is weak. And if we would be strong, then we must repent in the very pattern that we see Daniel and Ezra collectively. It's not enough for us to repent individually, collectively. We need to come and through the apparent weakness of repentance, be restored in the fullness that God intends, that his gracious power might rest upon us for the sake of the nations. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we continue in the Christian life in the very same way that we began the journey, through repentant faith that leads to times of refreshing, leading to more repentant faith and more times of refreshing. Oh, Lord, grant that this cycle of repentance and refreshment that Peter speaks of would be our experience. 
from now to the very day when Jesus returns and restores all things that are broken and makes all things new. And so we cry out, Lord, hasten that day, hasten that glad and glorious day, and until then, deepen our repentance and multiply our times of refreshment. Oh, Lord, grant that we would not be proud and resist you. Oh, Lord, we need more grace. Lord, self-righteousness, it doesn't bring refreshment. Jesus, by your life and by your cross, you've shown us that the way up is the way down. You never sinned, and yet you humbled yourself for us, dying for us on Calvary. Oh, Lord, we show we understand the gospel best, not in groveling despair, not in faith-saving penitence, but in the beauty of repentant faith. Forgive us when we make excuses when we offer explanations, when we shift the blame, when we try to dodge your convicting work. Oh, Lord, grant that we would not be slow to repent.